yeah, we're putting plants in the ground and all that, but we got to think about the real purpose for that is we're farming wine. Not, we're not farming grapes. You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, and I am without my co-host Billy Galanko today, who is out gallivanting on the other side of the pond, doing some traveling, some wine tasting, some sightseeing, and hopefully eating some good food too. So we'll hear from Billy when he gets back in town, hopefully next episode. But this is a short intro today. Just wanted to provide a little bit of context around our interview for today. We have Andrew Jones of Field Recordings and Fabulist fame. Field Recordings, the uh, multi-site producer out of the Central Coast. They have a number of wines from top select vineyards around the central coast of California, especially Pastor Robles, where they're working on Rhone varieties, doing a lot of really cool things with white wine skin contact. Um, really awesome packaging, really spectacular wines just in terms of the quality of the fruit. And I think a lot of our conversations that we get into with Andrew today center around talking through the blending of the two roles that he's taken on over the last 15 or 16 years with these projects. One as vineyard manager, site identifier, and just viticulturalist, and also kind of this role as winemaker and how those two things play together for him in his career. So we talk about winemaking, we talk about vineyard site selection. Andrew has probably been in almost every vineyard at some point on the Central Coast, and so he has a breadth of knowledge about winemaking in that region. It's one of Billy and I's favorite regions, and it's a place where Billy got an early start working for some wine labels in that area. So we're excited to have Andrew Jones on today, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Andrew, it's great to have you today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we want to, obviously, there's, I think, a number of different routes we can go down, and uh, Billy has some roots in the Central Coast. I've got to do some visiting there, and that's unique for me because I live on the East Coast. A lot of good memories tied to time that I got to spend out there. We'd love to hear how you got your start in wine, and over as your projects have evolved over the last couple of years, where you're at today, and how that's different from maybe when you started out and what you were expecting. Yeah, I, I started in this whole deal 20 years ago, or actually this is my 21st season working on the vineyard side of things. I started working for a wholesale grapevine nursery with six months left in college at Cal Poly, and that's the only real job I've ever had. It's actually, I still do that job to this day. That is the day job. I make wine on the side, yeah. uh, technically. And so I've been working for Sunridge Nurseries, one of the, the largest wholesale grapevine nursery. I run the wine grape side of the business for the company. And so started in that and then started making wine, I guess I'm 14 years into it. I think this year will be my 15th harvest. And basically it was just, I wanted to learn more about the winemaking process. I was, when I was going out and planting these new vineyards and getting new vines to people, I was dealing with the winemaker a lot more than the vineyard manager on how we lay it out, how we design it, what goes into it. And so I just started making some wine in my spare time during the harvest months when it's really quiet for the nursery. And that sort of rolled into a whole new enterprise for me with, with field recordings. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting that you mentioned that you were working with a winemaker and kind of were like use general terms, which is fine. But once you drill down there on what does that mean, how things were laid out and um, like what was the winemaker? What kinds of things were you guys looking at in the vineyard maybe 15 years ago versus or I guess that was 10 years ago to now? What kinds of things are you were you talking about then that maybe that conversation has changed? Yeah. So the main thing was like, it's not just a vine that we're getting to grow. Like we're thinking about how that wine is going to translate to an end wine versus how it's going to translate to an end vine or yeah, we're putting plants in the ground and all that, but we got to think about the real purpose for that is we're farming wine. Not, we're not farming grapes. And that, that whole saying that kind of got with how we farm wine, it's very true on stuff. How do we want to utilize the things on these ranches? Like whether it be like north slope, south slope, east, whatever the row orientation might be, whether that be the rootstock that we use, how does that rootstock going to affect the chemistry of the end wine? And then when you get into the whole clone thing, a lot of the winemakers like to talk about this clone, that clone, and all that, and how that is going to relate then to the end wines. And trying to get stuff that's going to also, I feel like I've gotten to the point now where not only am I pairing plants for that property, but I know I have a good knowledge of what plants will pair well for that winemaker's winemaking style. So, and trying to get all that stuff aligned is is the main thing. So, have you come full circle at all and and work with any of the vineyards that you help plant in any of your wines? Yeah, so we uh, I have a few vineyards that taken the whole way, taking the whole thing full circle, and now produce the wines from those properties. I've also had some stuff with like experimental varieties or things that I want to try that I was able to get grower friends to take a chance on. And a prime example is we have the only commercial planting of Shirello on the, mm. in California right now that I nice. got a friend to plant in Santa Barbara County and things like that. I have a vineyard that I work with in West Paso that they planted a whole selection of heritage Cabernet clones from historical vineyards in Northern California. And we use that for one of our wines and all different kinds of stuff like that. So cool. I'm a sucker for obscure grape varieties. Can you share a couple of the other ones that you may have planted? Yeah. So recently, stuff that I have in production right now would be Shirello. Been pushing with Charbono for Central Coast. Some of my favorite, like iconic California wines, are from those old Charbono vineyards in Calistoga. And I always relate Calistoga to being very similar to Paso Robles climate-wise, with it being a little bit the warmer part of the Napa Valley yeah. and all that. And so we mess around with that. This year, I will harvest Savignon, Trousseau, Pulsard. We've got some Trousseau Gris as well that we're going to get going on. Also messing with some different grapes that we can use for my skins program, which is our Skin Contact White program for field recordings. It's become a big thing. So I have Petit Mansang, Gros Mansang. What else did I put out there? Gina. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. Also just resurrected a little vineyard. There's about 50 vines up in Tepescate Canyon in Santa Maria that were from original cuttings from the La Parisima mission of Mission Pais. Yeah. Oh, cool. Acres, yeah. And so I recently took some cuttings off of that and we put a couple acres of that in Paso to try that out and... I'm really like one thing I'm after right now is like trying to create some lighter table wines. I feel like that's just the category where like the consumption trends are going and stuff and like looking to looking to work with more grapes, especially like past Robles is thought of as baking these big extracted ripe red wines, but we can do a pretty good job too with 
maintaining acidity here for lighter stuff. And that's that's where I'm pushing hard is for things that are warm climate grapes, but they can be more elegant, finesse, refreshing wines. Yeah, I think I've experienced that, like, well, even in the reds, especially like on the west side up in the hills and stuff. Is that like in terms of where your projects, these vineyards are mainly located around the Paso area? Is a lot of your stuff in the west or how's it laid out? Not to get too into it, but. Yes. So I, my one main site that I like is an old vineyard that's in the river bottom, essentially in the north central part of town, super sandy soil. That's, that's been one spot that I have a bunch of things put in there. I call it the hinterland vineyard. And then I do a lot of stuff over in El Palmar. So Mm. El Palmar, like Southeast side, but you have the West side soil. It's the heavy chalk rock, but then there's a few more heat units there. And it's, in my opinion, it's like the best bang for the buck wine growing area in Paso because you have the right soil you're getting coastal influence from the Templeton Gap plus Monterey Bay but it's a little bit easier to farm there you're not using those extreme hillsides that they have on the west side when you get out to Willow Creek and so for I think for me I make bottles of wine that retail for 20 to 40 bucks and you know those sites that are on the west side they're so challenging to farm and so intense that those have to be going to north of 50 dollars program so i right. really yeah I mean, everybody's flagship gsm blend on the west side i think probably comes in at 75 to 100 these days yeah. and you got you have to be there like the quality's there and stuff but like those vineyards are so hard to farm you should when we put a new one in for the nursery we can get with a full crew maybe a crew member can plant 100 vines in a day whereas other applications and stuff like East flat ground and stuff. You could have one person knocking out 500 to a thousand plants in a day on sandier soil on flatter ground and stuff. Yeah. That's Um, it's serious viticulture inputs. That's a great, that's a great kind of insight or like thing to consider that I don't know that we've talked a ton about, or we've heard a lot about from folks when we talk about deciding which sites they're planting. And it feels like something that only comes from someone whose first foray is viticulture. Cause you went from viticulture to winemaking and obviously others go winemaking to viticulture in terms of like their emphasis or where they spend a lot of their time. What do you think is the best? Like if you could go back, would you rather have been doing more winemaking to start? Or do you think starting in the vineyard is always the best? I think, I think starting in the vineyard was good for me on the winemaking side because I never had any formal training in winemaking. I don't have a textbook to go back to on how wine should be made or have a I've never had any classes on like wine chemistry and all that. And so everything for me is based on the growing side and then taste and feel rather than a full chemistry experiment. The exception to that being sparkling, because I do a lot of sparkling wine and uh, that truly is a chemistry experiment, experiment. But I think it's been good for me to be able to develop a style for things that I make both on field recording side and on my other wine company, Fabulist. That's, that is viticulture driven and then working with what we got in the winery. Nice. You, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. Oh no, you build on that. I was going to pivot a little bit. Yeah. So like one thing, for example, for me on stuff, like I, I pick everything off of bricks or sorry, off of the acidity rather than bricks. I'm not big on sure. Like we need to have natural acidity in it. So that's really the only thing I want to bring in numbers and stuff into it. Cause I do feel that, once vineyards have started losing their natural acidity that in the winemaking process, you just start chasing your tail on turning that into the wine that's going to be like, ultimately that's peak ripeness on the bell curve. 
And it's like, I think I want, I am drawn to wines more in the end that are picked off of that, that have their proper natural acidity rather than it's basically dehydrating to get to the, the ripeness levels. And then you just have to manipulate it on the wine side. But a 13% alcohol wine with the right natural acidity, I tend to go towards instead of a 14.5% alcohol wine that's had acid added to it. So, yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't think people like I used to work for a, a Paso and Monterey based winery, at least that's where their estate vineyards were the wineries. They have two wineries. And I don't think people understand how cool and cold it can get in Paso at, at night and how that natural just the cooling effect actually can create these wines with nice finesse rather than just giant wines. And I think arguably more finesse sometimes than like somewhere like Napa that relies on not only coolness from the water, but like fog. It's more this like really cool air that cools Paso. Yeah, I know that cool air at night. It's yeah, pretty amazing with the some parts of the summer it'll be 40 degrees that will cool off and, and all that. And, uh, and it's a reason too that I think Paso has become the hub for Cabernet for California, affordable cab. Because like we can make... We get all the flavor profiles that, that the consumer wants out of Cabernet Sauvignon, but without the extreme grippy tannins that require either heavy manipulation or a lot of aging time to get to get around it. And I always got to give props to some of the bigger brands like J. Lauren, Justin and stuff that they're making affordable Cabernet. They, they've paved the way for that on for that category and you got delicious Cabernet that you, everyone can afford that you can open on any night of the week and it's super dependable and it's a classic wine. Yeah, I agree. I feel like there's, it's just a prime price point for people to be able to get into some of those other wines in the region as well. They come just say to, I'm just thinking of like Austin Hope, they buy their 55 or whatever, their cab, $55 cab. And then they realize that they make Syrah and they like, I think they have a single variety like Mouved bottling, like those kinds of things that you end up getting into once you attached to those brands. I think that's huge, especially because like you said, consumers are looking for that profile. Yeah. On the note of ranges. Yeah. I was going to say, let's pivot back to your two wines. Can you explain what the difference between field recordings, which you solely own or run and then Fabulous, which you also are a big part of? Yeah, Fable or sorry, field recordings was the original winery for me. It's the concept of field recordings and a recording of a natural occurrence, I feel like is really relevant for a simple way of explaining the whole terroir concept, people, place, and time captured in a bottle. And that's the thing for all the field recordings wines. Every wine is tied to a story that involves the people that are farming it, that unique piece of dirt, or those unique grapes that are maybe planted there and all that. We, with field recordings, deal with more like esoteric stuff, we make a lot of skin contact white. So we do a lot of pet nat, but then I still do a little bit of like things like Cabernet and all that under it. But the thought process is different. Whereas I started Fabulist and 10 years ago with my buddy, Kurt Shacklin that has a San Liege wines. And for that, we wanted to do classic varietal wines from the central coast of California that over delivered for the price that had great varietal character and that were not overly manipulated minimal intervention winemaking, just like very pure varietal expressions that were at a very affordable price point. So, so like for Fabulist, our main thing is doing Paso Cab. We do Chardonnay from the Edna Valley, which I think is one of the nice. most underrated appellations in California. We do Pinot Noir from Santa Barbara. And then we do a Rosé program from Paso Robles as well. 
Sauvignon Blanc from Santa Barbara. And those are the staples for the Fabulist company. Nice. Yeah. Now that's after I haven't had the opportunity to have any Fabulist yet. So I'm going to seek some of those out. I like when people try to make the wines taste like the grapes that they come from rather than a style that they think people want. I think yeah. it just makes a lot more sense. We are, my partner and I down here, we are big skin contact fans in general. We drink a lot of those types of styles of wine. So we've been watching the Fueled Recordings journey. And I think it's cool because it looks like you guys have really gained a lot of momentum. I remember when we used to find it in our natural wine shops and now it's at Whole Foods. It's all over the place. Yeah, it's been, I got enamored with those wines when I started traveling for Field Recordings early on. So when Field Recordings started, it was a few single vineyard wines. And then I made this catch-all red blend called Fiction. I had a very Central Coast palette. I feel just I hadn't expanded too much on what I like to do and or making all that. And but hit the road to share my wines that I made and tell my stories. And I got introduced to orange wines. And then I came in and I was like, I think I can make a really good version of that from Paso Robles. That's something that wasn't being done in Paso at the time. Came back, I started experimenting for a couple of years on different vineyards and lots that I could work with for that. And I think I'm six years into skins and it like grows exponentially on how much we make every year. And yeah, that's why I feel those goofy baseball stats on everything. With the, I think we make more orange wine than anybody else in the country. Uh, <laughs> like the leader in seventh inning doubles next uh, against left-handers named Fernando kind of thing. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been fun. And that's one of those things where like more new grapes and everything, like the more vineyards I can introduce to that program, the more varieties that we can add to it, the more complexity that I'm building into those. And, you know, that every year we're making a better version of skins, like scaling that up hasn't been to detriment of that program. That wine's only getting better because I can add more components to it every year. So nice. That was going to be one of my questions. How do you maintain quality while you scale? But I guess you just answered it. It's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, with the extra vineyards and different grapes that we can put into it. So it's always Chenin Blanc and Pinot Gris as the two core varieties. But there's always a little Riesling in there. There's always some Albarino in there. There's always some Verdello in there. This last year, we we introduced Tokai Forlano to it. I have all those new grapes coming online next year. We're also getting some Semillon next year for the first time. I've been experimenting with Malone. And uh, yeah, it, the really like the possibilities are endless on it. So nice. Uh, yeah, like, roll into to like we do a straight romato now that uh, we have a couple pinot gris vineyards that really shine through and that's the variety that i feel like is the best that for a standalone the other ones i feel like are more blending components on it and so we do the domo arigato mr romato as a field recordings wine and then skins and then we also do a bag and box orange wine too called boxy that is we take some of the funky orange lots and with combine that with some Chardonnay and it makes a great like skin contact option in that bag and box category. And that's been a nice new addition to the lineup as well. Yeah. The, the, the skins label was the first skin contact white that I shared with a group of people that I knew had never had something like that before. Super accessible, yeah. which I think is probably why it's growing so much in that category. And I also felt if I'm remembering back, we had a good conversation about like tannin and white wines with that label. Am I off base there or? The, no, that's, that sounds correct on it. The last little bit got cut off there on, on the, about the tannin on it. But yeah, uh, I just, I just remember, I think we're having a conversation about, I feel like 
Just a lot of people don't have context for there being like tannin structure in white wines. And I felt if I'm remembering back correctly, there was definitely some of that in that label. Do you feel like you get that as well or am I off base? No, definitely. Like the key to making good skin contact whites is managing the tannins on it. That's why every every lot that goes into that has a minimum of 30 days of skin contact. Like we push it actually to try to get to 60 days typically Oh wow! on a lot of stuff. It really needs a lot of extended maceration to really mellow that out. And then on top of that, we age it in, we always have a, a, a percentage of new acacia barrels there because we need some fresher barrels to help round it out even more too. But then we want acacia so it's not imparting any vanillin into the wine. So it keeps that like tropical stone fruit apricot character that, that orange wines typically have. And, uh, but yeah, that's the whole secret in, in my opinion to making good skin contact wines is you got to be really good at managing the tannin. The day, if we press it too early, we'll never get a rep past that astringency. Like we need to get that stuff to a point where we feel like it's oxidized and falling apart in the bin. Then we press it and it's perfect. Yeah. That, that's a big thing for us. Like we don't even yeah. like to, when it gets into the extended maceration part of it, we don't even taste it daily to see if it's ready to press. Like I only taste it on a bi-weekly or a weekly basis because I don't want to jump the gun and be accidentally come in one day and my palate be a little off and then, oh, it's ready now. It's not going to change in a day. If it wasn't ready to press on Monday, it's not going to be ready on Tuesday. It needs time. I need to let it go. I need to push it on that. Yeah, I feel like I didn't have too much context for 60 days. Sounds like a really long time to me. It wasn't even in my purview of how long I felt like that process would go. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool to hear. Billy, do you have anything there? I was going to pivot. I wanted to hear some about the packaging, but do you have anything there on the orange wines? No, I guess a little bit. I was just thinking about the maceration time as well. It's interesting when you, sometimes when you think of extended, even like in a red wine context, some people are leaving it on for a little bit more tannin extraction, as well as if you think of like Georgian styles of orange wines, some of those can be immensely tannic and those sit within their tannic and with their skins and the cuvee for forever. So I, I just thought that was interesting. Also, I don't think people understand. There's a lot of people out there trying to make orange wine and just do a little bit of skin maceration, not really put much thought and care into their wine and just throw it in the bottle because it looks pretty. I think it's really cool to hear how much time and effort go into something, even like skins, which people may see at the grocery store as well. So I think that's really interesting. I think we a lot of us, a lot of people fall into that trap on stuff. I related a lot to like sour beer and like sour beer was so hot for a while, but just because mm-hmm. it was sour doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, just because it's skin contact or it's orange wine doesn't mean that it's been properly done or just even on all things that fall into the natural wine space on stuff, just because it checks some boxes that people assume that it's going to be widely accepted and like still got to have some TLC there. Yeah, for sure. I love that. All right, Brady, ask away on your packaging there. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we definitely go longer on. I always like hearing different folks' perspective on the natural wine stuff, but let's. I wanted to touch on the bag and box, and also we can talk about cans. I know you don't have your alloy can wine project anymore, but maybe you can talk about how what that was like starting to explore some of those alternatives. Was that something you've been thinking about for a long time? Like, how far back does that go? And what do you think the forward-looking maybe trajectory is for those packaging types being more and more widely used? Yeah, I think the alternative packaging is good for wine overall. And I look at that as from my 
nursery stuff and seeing the greater good for the California grape grower or Oregon grape grower, Washington grape grower, or anything like alternative packaging is a good thing because the more we can get the general population to accept wine as their daily pop of choice versus the spirits or, or beer or something like that's good for wine overall. Like we need to make wine more accessible. Wine doesn't have to be ceremonial. And like where we're at now versus 15 years ago, it's, it's grown exponentially on that, but we need to keep pushing it. We need to keep making wine more accessible, not become a luxury good and all that. I love fine wine. There is like Burgundy, for example, is the perfect example of why wine is a superior alcoholic beverage choice to spirits or beer or anything. It's the only thing that is truly tied to agriculture. The next closest thing would be tequila. That's like literally the only thing that can even sniff wine on how specialized all this stuff is and how the nuance of it that the right side of the driveway tastes different than the left side of the driveway going into a property and, and things like that. And so all that, though, I think goes back and relates to alternative packaging. Can we have really delicious canned wine that people can have as a RTD, whatever, from their local retailer and just head to whatever casual event they're doing and pop a can of wine? all things like that bag and box too like having something that is makes it super affordable for people you're not committing to having a whole bottle in a night yeah it is typically three liters of wine at once but you got three liters of wine that you can keep in your fridge that you can have a glass here and there over 60 to 90 days and that thing is going to be fresh and just the last glass is going to give you the same experience as the first glass the technology on bag and box has gotten way better that was one thing i looked in bag and box years ago and just the bladders are so much better than what they used to be in the shelf lives that you have. That was one thing why I went cans first before bag and box because cans have a great shelf life too. Basically, the only reason that there's a date on any cans is because none of the manufacturers of aluminum cans give you any warranty. I have 2012 vintage fiction red cans that I saved that are I can pop and taste great. That was our first venture into can wine. We did it in early 2013. And like... We were winging it. I had nobody to talk to. I had no idea. I got a mobile beer canning line where I was willing to drive up to Paso from Pasadena and can some wine for me. Like we didn't know how to keep the cans firm. We didn't have, didn't have squat. I had to figure out everything. Like it ended up, that was actually another thing, like the lower input, minimal intervention winemaking style that we have here actually did us a favor on cans because we're not adding these other products that react with the can or the aluminum the spray liners and things like that you know we made some mistakes along the way we got really fortunate in some things and then all that but uh, yeah so overall though alternative package i think is great need more of it the one thing i think we'll see probably swing back in a few years i got out of the can wine spot with alloy because i felt like at that time everybody was chasing it and it was a race to the bottom on just getting cans or wine in cans and trying to get it at the same prices that people buy beer cans at and all that. And it just wasn't a space for me and all that. But I think you're going to start seeing it swing back where you're seeing more premium stuff going into cans. There are premium canned wines out there. But then at the same time, though, like I still get calls regularly from some marketing executive that thinks they have the greatest idea for the next great can wine. And But the first question out of their mouth is how cheap can you get wine in it? Yeah, that's not the right approach. But uh, yeah, I think we'll see it swing back on that. That you'll see higher end wine in cans. There are some good can wines out there and all that. And then also on the bag and box, it's great. We're doing the bag and box. We got Tobles is doing 
the their patien and stuff in bag and box. Got another producer here in Tin City that does like a whole like on-prem collaboration lineup of wines called Hubba. It's the winery's called Hubba, but uh, Riley Hubbard is doing basically like joint ventures with different wineries to do stuff that like she basically does it on tap via bag and box at her tasting room. It's awesome place to hang out in Tin City. And I think you're going to start just keep seeing more stuff like that. We're working on a chillable red in, in bag and box right now that hoping to have out towards the end of the year and yeah, going to keep pushing. So did you say 2012 on that fiction can that you yeah, have? Tw- 2012 fiction red was the first can. Wow. Um, so wh- I hesitate to even broach this, but you're talking about shelf life. What does that mean in terms of just like ageability, like nothing, right? Or what's, can you talk about that for some of these alternative packagings? Yeah, that's like kind of the whole thing with the farce of the, I mean, we do most of our stuff under cork, but some of the misconceptions on cork and all that, you know, like ultimately a wine breathing, it's oxidized. So like you technically want that like nice airtight seal. It's not getting any light on it. And, and things like that. And so it, it's actually a good vessel for storage of product. And the, yeah, the wine, it holds up really. So this is another thing too, when I got going on that with Fiction. So Fiction was our main red table wine that we did. It was our most widely distributed wine and all that. And the second vintage, the 13, that was also when keg wine was getting popular for on-premise use. And so I was kegging, canning, and bottling all at the same time with the 2013 Fiction Red. Like the most time that could have elapsed between those wines was about 48 hours. Yeah. Variable in the tank, but it was all blended up in the same tank. And I'm running keg. I have a kegging line running off of it. I have a canning line running off of it. And we're bottling all at the same time at the same, at one facility off of the same tank. And it was great to go through that exercise and pour those wines for people because it was like, do a blind tasting for people with can versus bottle versus keg. And, and you want to know the only thing that was for sure on that, that like statistically relevant, the one thing that mm-hmm. came out of that study is there was one item that always lost. And that was the keg. Yeah. Uh, really? Yeah. And I, and like, I get it on keg wines becoming so popular and all that. It's a, it's a very convenient thing for restaurants and it's good economics for restaurants to just have a tap line and all that. But just for some reason with the way that wine gets pumped and run through those hoses and all that, it's just, it was like unanimous always. Like it was about 50, 50 where people would pick the can versus the bottle on all that, but it was very neutral. But the one thing though is keg always came last. Do you think it's like the pressure or is it running through the lines or what do you think? I think what is your theory the, the, with the hoses and, <laughs> and it's one of those things too, like beer distributors are all set up with keg technicians on staff that constantly go around and are servicing accounts. None of the wine distributors have that set up in their infrastructure yet. So part of it, I think it comes down to the kegerator used and all that and like how it's maintained and all that. And, but there is something with that poly rubber hose that, you know, whether it's a small kegerator or a place with fixed beer lines in that the wine gets, I don't know. It just, it's always flat <laughs> to me on stuff. Hmm. That's the thing too. Like the smaller, those places that do smaller kegerator setups, I think do better with it. Early on, we were doing some keg wines for some beer places that 
they didn't want to keep a wine list. They just wanted to have red and white on draft. And then they had their 50 other tap selections and they'd have these hundred foot long hoses going back to the keg room that they were pulling out of. And you could see a big difference on that as we would have, I would go in there and then have them pull eight glasses all at once. And that first glass would taste way different than the last glass because that wine is sitting in those hoses. Oh, wow. But then at the same time though, like keg wine's back. I got people all over me wanting kegs since restaurants are back and we've had, I have to figure out a way to embrace it and do the best job we can to have good wine and keg. Is Even sparkling I, better? The keg is going to taste as good. <laughs> yeah. Is the sparkling a better option for keg? Sparkling is tough in kegs because that goes also back to the keg technicians and you have to have really special setups to deal with the pressure in sparkling wine versus beer. McKellar beer, that Denmark company that had these beer bars all over the world. And they had these special setups and all those bars that it was a, it was its own CO2 regulator for every keg. Nothing was on a shared regulator. Like you have to have one of those setups, I think, to properly do sparkling wine. Cause you can't just run it on a, like your general kegerator that's a four tap island tap system. That's only got one regulator in it that is running all four kegs. And it's a different story on how you have to do your settings and all that. So fast, fascinating thing for all the folks in micromatic school. I highly recommend it for anybody working in restaurants. So. Are you exploring any other alternatives or I know we've talked about several of them now and I can't off the top of my head think of what else is out there, but is there anything else that you're exploring? Nothing else alternative wise. I do really like the one liter bottle, but one liter bottles just aren't feasible in the U.S. You have to use mm. European glass for that. And European glass, by the time it gets to California, it takes away any savings we might have. And I don't think it's worth a premium to do it in one liters versus 750s. But I like those one liters. I think it's just more efficient on shipping. Like you got a 12 liter case that's taking up the same footprint as a nine liter case. One liter, I feel like, is a pretty reasonable, like, shareable size for a, two couples at a dinner and all that without having to get the second bottle. So I, I like stuff like that. It's not really an alternative, but I think some of these sure. size changes are things um, that are viable. But, uh, yeah, nothing else really alternative packaging-wise for us. Yeah. I always thought it would be fun to do Capri Sun packets, but uh, nice. yeah, we have other alternatives that are just as convenient with being able to do cans. Those plastic rip off with your teeth, the sugar drink ones, that'd be cool too. What are they called? I like the Kool-Aid ones. Kool-Aid, yeah, yeah. Or the barrels. That would actually be sweet. The the little barrel pull-offs. That would be like that would be a great packaging for RTDs. <laughs> yeah. So are you in last like I guess last packaging question, we don't have to stay too long. Is are you exploring any other closures at all as well? Or are you just keeping regular? Is it like composite cork? Or are you looking at Pop tops. I, I, I'm a big fan. We use DM corks on everything. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. that, I relate that a lot to my nursery life. Like I'm manufacturing a biological product that people expect you to have like a, a factory warranty on, um, <laughs> but it's a plant and everything. And you know, that DM has come up with the technology to have a, to give you a warranty that cork is going to be TCA free for a certain amount of years because like they sell them three fives tens and i think 20s that they Mm -hmm. have and and i've looked at the there's other competitors in the cork space that have a similar product but they don't give you the same warranty 
and things like that. And, and I drink the Kool-Aid on, on that product. And it's just one of those things too. Again, when I'm talking about all this alternative packaging and all that stuff, like there is a comfort level to a cork and there's like certain things that people still perceive for a quality thing. And it's also something for the consumers that are into my brand and like buying our wine. They prefer a cork over a screw cap. Like a joke around a clear glass cork finish can't lose is with the way that the current consumer these kind of need or the especially the younger consumers they want to be able to see the color of it but it's like it goes back to when the rosé boom was happening so many decisions are made by what color the product is and all that but then that's also a thing everybody always asks me like when are you gonna put skins in clear glass and i'm like i'm holding off on that i'm like stick with the green glass because i also see like a product like that as the gateway into that category and we need to have some stuff that's like a little bit more comfortable for people and not seeing that amber color right away because like it's still a catch term they read about it in a magazine or saw something on it oh what's this orange wine thing we need to try this oh that <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah also i think the label on the skins just pops on the green i don't think it would pop the same with if it was clear yeah i think and so much of the decisions on our packaging goes down to the shelf aesthetic we got to make sure it looks good on the shelf for somebody to take a chance on this unknown brand from an still unknown wine area and uh, and then we got to make sure it tastes good so they come back and buy it again yep yeah, i want to pivot i guess we've so we've done closures a little bit of viticulture stuff we touched briefly on sustainability just wanted to hear what are your kind of top like top two three considerations when you're out there and you're thinking like how do we take a new plot and try and turn it around maybe there's been other practices going on what are your kind of top three priorities when you get somewhere new and you're focusing on sustainability and trying to create an ecosystem around those new vines? Yeah. Big thing for me is personality of the grower. I like owner operators. Majority of the vineyards in California now are owned by institutional funds and things like that. Like it's, but there still is the local, local folks that I can buy grapes from and all that. I do family run type spots and all that. And then grape growers that there's some grape growers that are a little more wine savvy than others. Like that I'm not making your mainstream wines and like for some growers have a tough time wrapping their head around what I'm making out of it. And it's, so that's one of the things to look for. I look a lot for, I'm more concerned about variety and rootstock than clones. I don't, even though it's like a joke that clones were just a thing that helped elevate the nursery growth because we needed all these different things and people had to plant all these different things so they could get all the clones. But uh, I'm really big on rootstock. I think rootstock gets discounted a lot. If you go out to a vineyard that, uh, say the vineyard, it's a uniform block, all the same, and you were to plant that block and split it up into four sections where you did the same rootstock and four clones, or you did that same block with one clone and four rootstocks, you'll have drastically different wines for each sub block on the rootstock than the clones. I don't know if that would be explaining that properly, but yeah. all these rootstocks forage for nutrients differently, which then leads to different chemistry of the grapes. So three of our most popular rootstocks, and sometimes you have to use these certain rootstocks, but that same Cabernet on rootstock A will harvest at 3.4 pH. The next one will be 3.6 pH. The next one will be 3.8 pH. Mm -hmm. And that's just a thing for like how much potassium does it pull up when those roots are down in the dirt working and all that. And, and that's picked on the same day kind of thing. And it's, uh, I think we need to look into that a little bit more, but then at the same time though, we're also dealing with crazier growing conditions with 
different changes in the growing environment. You got to be able to have stuff that holds up well with heat. You know, we're getting more extreme cold and more extreme heat and things like that. And you got to be ready for that and all that stuff. And, but yeah, rootstock is a big thing for me. The person farming it is a big thing for me. And then that's really it. It has to be something that I'm excited about. I don't like, I, even for stuff when I'm making just a classic varietal wine, there's just this, I don't know, there's like a non-tangible thing when you go out onto the property and it just feels right. And I don't know, I, don't know, I feel like it sounds dumb in saying that, but it, it, I really, I don't know if anybody saw that, like the 60 minute interview of Rick Rubin recently. And uh, so he's like, do you know how to work a soundboard? No. Do you know how to play an instrument? No. Do you know how to read music? No. But then how does this work? It's like, I just have this feeling and my, his gut instinct has always never let him down. So I have a similar thing with going on these properties that there's like a gut instinct that this works or this mm. doesn't work. And yeah. I, it, it's, it, there, there is, there's a feeling for each of those vineyards that the formula is right there. Nice. Taking one little step back for the listeners, can you explain one, like how the rootstocks are put on to the roots? I think it's a really interesting process and I don't think many folks know. And then just like a couple of the high level things that like rootstocks can help solve. They can have be drought resistant, pest resistant, a couple of those high level things. Yeah. So for the nursery, we're farming grapes just the same way as a regular grape farmer would be farming, except we cut all the fruit off. We farm for the wood. So our, our crop every year are those cuttings that come off of it in the wintertime when we're pruning. And we farm a few thousand acres of that. A rootstock makes up, it's usually two-thirds rootstock to one-third of the scion wood. So scion wood being all the varieties and clones and all that. The, the rootstock gets harvested typically in 14 to 18-inch sections. And then bundled up, brought to the nursery, kept in cold storage until it's ready to propagate. And then we'll also harvest the scion wood in that same sort of length. But then basically every bud on that cutting is a new plant. So then it gets cut up into one to two inch pieces. And then there's many different ways that you can bench graft vines. There's these Omega cutting machines that looks like a classic Omega shaped. And it's like a puzzle piece. The things just slide together. We use a spline graft that's a little bit more of a straighter cut and it gets a little deeper. There's all different ways that you can do it. It's a fascinating thing, something to YouTube or look up on YouTube or Google about plant grafting and then all the different ways to do it. But basically, like we take those two parts, we put them in a climate controlled room and that climate controlled room is perfect for getting the callus to grow. So think of callus as being like you cut your arm and then you get a scab. That is our skin tissue healing. And the callus is essentially that plant scab. And that holds those two pieces together. And then we take those healed sticks and we'll put them in a greenhouse or we'll put them out in the field, depending on what type of product that the grower is wanting. The rootstocks though, the main drivers for the rootstock are lime tolerance is one. So like we have specific things for past robles because we have that calcareous soil, how much lime is in the soil. That's a big thing in it. Drought tolerance, like how deeply rooted are they? Does it handle water stress really well? There's some rootstocks that have very fibrous roots, and then there's other rootstocks that have mostly tap roots that drive really deep. They're a little bit slower to get going, but they can hold on forever kind of thing. So, you know, how the root orientation and the root structure, that's a big thing, which relates to the drought tolerance. Other things, salt tolerance. With all this irrigated ground, we're building up more salts and all that. And so how well does the stuff handle salts? Other things like that 
soil pests like uh, nematodes that uh, that feast on those roots and can hamper the vines. So if you have nematodes present in your soil, we'll use certain root stocks over others. But yeah, it's basically chemistry of the soil, like water availability, and then the pests in the soil. Now, those are the main things that that we use to to break it down. And we have some stuff. One of the most fascinating areas to put new vineyards in is in the California Delta in Clarksburg. Like growers there were actually paying to pump the water out of the vineyard instead of pumping water mm. irrigated. The water tables will be at like under 10 feet. And basically those vines are growing in, a, in the riverbed their whole life. And wow. you have to have stuff that's very shallow rooted that can be saturated for longer periods of time and not get, uh, not get uh, goofy looking. So, so yeah, there's all different things that go into it, but yeah, rootstock is one of the things that I think it's, uh, that gets discounted a little bit. And I think it could be used a little bit more as a winemaking tool. We have about 30 rootstocks ish that get used in California or in the U S on an annual basis Four of those make up 80% of it. And we got to be careful on that for monocultures and things like that. And right now we're using stuff that's all resistant and holding up to phylloxera and still and everything, but who knows, like something else comes along. And like when the old, there was an old rootstock AXR that failed in California that, that and in ag at some point, it's not if it's just when, so something will come along. Yeah, that's good. I don't think we went that deep in, yeah, into that before. I think it's interesting to think about rootstocks as a lever that you can pull or that a winemaker or a viticulturist should be pulling more often. I think that's cool. Yeah. yeah. What just, uh, I guess to wrap up here, we're almost at time, a little off topic from wh- where we've been. Are you, do you have collector sensibility? Do you collect anything? Art? I know you have 2012 fiction. Are you like, what kind of guy are you in terms of what's cluttering up your house? Yeah. The, so the one thing randomly that the thing that I end up buying the most and collect the most that I make all this weird stuff, but to me, the thing that my go-to thing is actually shard. I like shard that has some age on it. I like all the different styles. It's the most fascinating of wines to me and the whole gamut of from Lita Kongsgaard stylistically and stuff. And for me, there's no better fine wine experience than fancy Chardonnay. But it's, that's the thing that just resonates for me personally, my wife as well. So yeah, for my personal collection and stuff, yeah, shoot, I bet I have 40 to 50% of that is, is shard. And then a client of mine actually from the nursery that I've always just been really enamored with his wines. They're so unique and I'm a big fan of Cayuse out of Walla Walla. So I have bought those since I first started working with them 20, almost 20 years ago. Nice. And like, there's something like, that's one of those producers or actually just Grenache and Syrah from the rocks and Walla Walla, I think is one of the most distinct flavor profiles of anything made in the U S and I just, I, those kind of resonate with me, but yeah, if you go look at my cellar, fancy Chardonnay and this would probably be the two main things that, that nice. I buy and keep going other stuff. I'll get into fads. Like was never, well, I got into working with some of those Jura grapes. I got a good mm-hmm. little bit of that kind of stashed and some other obscure stuff, some Piedmont reds and stuff that have been, they're more like I've gotten them just for winemaking fascination and all that than just the regular collecting and enjoying. Do you know, or, or hang out with Dave at monochrome much? I don't know him much other than him being a neighbor and stuff. And we've just had the neighborhood yeah. functions and all that, but, uh, but yeah, I was, 
No, no, I was going to mention he's following Chardonnay with Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Gris all together. Um, crazy. Some of this, uh, like, was crazy to me at least. <laughs> some of the blends he was doing, but it was really cool. I enjoy hearing him talk about his stuff. Yeah, all white. Oh yeah, all the and that's another thing too for me in general. Like, just I know overall, I think my I bet I'm two thirds of my cellar are white wines. That's how I'm drawn to more, and I like older white wines. That's another thing too. This I feel like we drink red wines too late and whites too early uh yeah always it's it almost like that temperature thing with drinking our reds too warm and our whites too cold so yeah that that's for sure it's definitely been true for me <laughs> in the past yeah. with the wines that i keep yeah thanks a lot man this is great thank you uh you gave us a ton of insight on some topics we just really don't go deep on a lot so yeah definitely appreciate you coming on joining us and, uh, and sharing about your projects no, sounds good talking to you guys, and uh, yeah, hopefully it was some good info for everyone. Yep, thanks awesome. a lot, man. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. All right, that's our episode with Andrew Jones of Fabulist and Field Recordings. Thank you all for tuning in. Please check out Andrew's projects and ask about his wines at your local wine shop or wine retailer, and we will see you all next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.